Well, we are in a series on discovering the Jesus way after deconstruction. And we're calling it Refined. Because not only do we need to refine the beauty of the Jesus way, we need to continually have our faith refined. So I'm grateful for the teaching team that we have here at Roots. Uh, we may be a small church, but we have a disproportionately gifted teaching team that I'm really, really blessed uh, by. I've learned so much from these last three sermons from Emily and Pastors Durr and Oshida. If you missed any of those sermons, you can um, still hear them on the website, and I think they're up on iTunes podcast as well, so check those out. Today, I'm going to be broaching a subject that is deeply personal to me, and I want to remind us all of something that Emily said three weeks ago. She said that in her most recent struggle with her own faith, her own deconstruction and reconstruction process, that she was heartbroken, not mind-broken, which is a great word. I think she coined it. Um, but what that means is that these subjects that we're discussing in this series, they aren't always about abstract concepts that we can hold at arm's distance. They are often personally and profoundly impactful to us in our lives. I know I have been impacted by today's subject, which is the church. In fact, for people of faith, is there a subject that conjures up more emotions, good or bad, than the church? Church is a subject that if you bring it up in a group, you better buckle up, right? Because you can sit there and listen to story after story after story of people's experiences of church. Some will be amazing, redemptive, miraculous. Others will be infuriating, disgusting, devastating. I want to reiterate the commitment that the pastoral team here at Roots have made during this series, that if you are someone who is struggling because of either heartbreak or mindbreak, we are making ourselves available. We want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. We want to listen to you. We want to pray with you. Each of us knows what it feels like to wrestle with faith and to be hurt. We don't have pat answers, but we're willing to join with you and together look for what God might be up to in your wilderness season. I think that church feels different from these other subjects we've been talking about because it hits very close to home. In our faith journeys, church is where the rubber meets the road. It's where what we say we believe gets road tested. It's where all the human flaws involved in our faith are put on the big screen. And I'm very confident that if we were just to pass a mic around right now, most of us in this room would probably have stories to tell about pain that we've experienced in church. I have a lot of stories. I have felt so personally betrayed by leaders that I have questioned the entire construct of church. I have felt unappreciated. I have felt used and abused. I have routinely searched the want ads for non-ministry jobs. That's a thing that I do. Um, if you're not aware of it, ordination in this tradition requires a master's degree, uh, but you are not likely to get master's degree money from any ministry job, and so there's that. It's frustrating. And I've also had to move my family because of church dysfunction, cross-country. Rashid and I have uh, even experienced racism in the church. So at the outset of this message, I want to make something perfectly clear. 
Your pain is real. And God sees it. And it matters to God. God sees how we've been hurt in church. And it deeply grieves God's spirit. I'm comforted by the fact that Paul reserves some of his harshest language for church folk. Right? And he doesn't pull very many punches in the New Testament. If you're here this morning and you've had any significant experience with church, you've likely been hurt at one point or another, or at the very least, you've been disappointed. And I want to say as sort of a professional church person, I'm sorry. On behalf of church leaders, I ask for your forgiveness. You are an image bearer of God, a child of God, and you deserve dignity, you deserve love. Believe it or not, being on this side of church leadership doesn't exempt me from being hurt either. I've been hurt by church folk too because, for example, I've dedicated my life to studying the Bible, church history, theology, and I've had people accuse me of heresy who couldn't find Leviticus if you gave them the table of contents, who call revelation revelations. I've been accused of being ungracious by people cussing me out. I've been accused of not preaching the gospel because I don't talk enough about the wrath of God. But by far the most painful experiences I've, I've experienced as a church leader have been when I've built relationships with people that I really cared about. And I expected to continue those relationships for years, perhaps even decades, and they've just ghosted me. Just completely gone. Like uh, when we started attending a Presbyterian church, we were Pentecostal. We started attending a Presbyterian church in New Orleans. Many of our Pentecostal friends just ghosted us. Just acted like we had died and they didn't even attend our funeral. When we were church planting in Boston, we had friends say they were down to church plant with us and then we never heard from them again. It was painful. I think the reason why church can hurt us so deeply is because at the core of it, church is about human relationships, right? And human relationships have these complex, complicated dynamics. We did a teaching series on relationship dynamics last year, and we barely even scratched the surface. Church is where we bear our souls with one another. And then church is where people call each other heretics for stupid reasons. Because they don't agree with some minutia of doctrine. Church is where you could pray with someone, shed tears with someone, Embrace someone, and then they can refer to you as an immoral person because of your political views or whatever, right? Church is where you can spend years sitting next to someone and never really get to know the real them because they have a phony church persona. Can I get an amen? Nobody's experienced that but me? Am I the only one that's experienced that? Come on. Woo! Another real thing that I think we should acknowledge, at least acknowledge, is that church scandals are sexy. They're salacious, right? Like, I laugh them up. I'm going to be honest with you. There are few experiences of schadenfreude that I have that are more satisfying than when, like, some blowhard religious leader gets exposed in the national media. I'm sorry. I love it. And so, because of all this, because church is so filled with flawed people, who hurt one another, many, many people are rethinking church altogether. Should we even do this thing? Why? 
and a lot of people are just walking away. In fact, I would go so far as to say most of the people I talk to about deconstruction are not wrestling with some abstract theological concepts. They're wrestling with this. Why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep showing up to this place that keeps hurting me? I get this impulse to quit church. I totally do. But in my own journey, which has included quite a bit of deconstruction, I have to admit that this thing that we call church, for all the hurt that has caused me, has also been the space where I've encountered God the most powerfully. This thing we call church is still the space where, for me at least, God's spirit dwells in a unique place that is unmatched anywhere else. Church is where God has regularly used women and men, common bread and cheap wine, simple music and tap water to transform me more and more into the person, not only that God wants me to be, but the person I want to be. So I can't give up on the church. I've tried. God has literally used the church, I think, to save my life. So this morning, I mean, I could talk a lot about deconstructing church, a lot. We could do an entire series on deconstructing church, just by itself. But I just want to talk about three ways that, in my life, uh, I've seen shifts in the way I understand church. And we're going to start in a passage in the Gospel of Mark. But before we do that, can we pray for the Spirit's illumination? God, we need you once again, like we always do. We need you by your Holy Spirit to shine your light of illumination on the scriptures as we open them today. I pray that you would illuminate their meaning, their purpose, their, their energy to us in, us in a new way. Help us to see what it is that you want us to see. Hear what it is that you want us to hear. Illuminate it to our hearts and to our minds. May it be like a seed that finds good soil. May it take root in our lives. May it bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look at Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, um, starting in verse 20. There's a story about Jesus being challenged by some religious leaders, Torah scholars, about the authority by which he drives out demons. In this story, we learn something about Jesus' family values, right? Starting in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> That's how my family thinks about me. Uh, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is radical. Think about how subversive this is. Not, not only in the first century... Think about how subversive it is today. Here we are in the 21st century, and this still raises people's blood pressure a little bit. He turns traditional family values on their head. He never marries. He teaches his disciples they shouldn't marry either. 
and he embraces people who aren't blood relatives as if they were family. In fact, in other places, he tells hearers of his good news that they have to be willing to be shunned, scorned, rejected by their families to be his disciple. But he promises them that all those who give up those kind of relationships would not fail to receive much more in the kingdom of God. And that actually is my experience. That's what has happened in my life. When I was 16 and I surrendered my life to Christ, sisters and brothers who would have been complete strangers to me, and honestly I would never have spent any time with, became closer to me than my own blood relatives. In fact, God has blessed me so much that today I have a beautiful, amazing family of siblings around the world that I'm really proud of. I have brothers in the Bronx. I've got brothers in Oakland and Portland. I've got sisters in Mexico and Canada. I've got siblings in Australia and Austria. Since I was 16 years old, men and women in the church have been my mothers, my brothers, my fathers, my uncles, my sisters. The first thing that we have to deconstruct when we think about church is that the church is some sort of social club, some sort of volunteer organization. Come and, come and go as you choose. That's not the church Jesus was creating. The church Jesus was creating was a family. And you know what's weird about family, or maybe not weird is the right, weird is not the right word. You know what's just plain true about family? You don't get to pick your family, right? You don't get to pick your family. I used to think that the church was like the X-Men. I've used this analogy before. I used to love the X-Men when I was a kid because every single one of the X-Men was like a superhero in their own right. They could have their own show, right? Their own comic book. But when they came together, there was this amazing team. But you know what? The church is not the X-Men. The church is the Guardians of the Galaxy. We are screw-ups, misfits, right? We are the ones that, left to our own devices, we would not be superheroes. We need each other, and this ragtag bunch of misfits with baggage together form something more powerful than we ever could on our own. The reason why the Jesus movement grew so quickly and because it was so, the reason why it was so radical is because it subverted the Roman social order of its time. In these gatherings of Jesus' disciples, because they had given their allegiance to Jesus, there would be people who would have naturally been separated by the Roman social order or would have been enemies gathering together as family. I'm talking about Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, children and adults. The church became family because a lot of these folks didn't have family. And there's a psalm that I think about, and every time I think about this psalm, it really takes me back to my, to my 16-year-old self. This is a very precious psalm to me. Psalm 68, 5 and 6 says, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. We are not guests in the church. We are family. In between uh, when I graduated from Bible college and when I got married, there was like a three-month gap. And so I didn't have a place to live. I got kicked out of the dorms, you know, done, and didn't want to move in with Oshita just yet. So where am I going to stay? One of my professors um, 
she and her husband allowed me to stay with them because their kids were grown off to, off to school, and so they had an extra bedroom or two. And I'll never forget the first night after dinner, she said this to me. She said, TC, you're not a guest here anymore. She said, now you're family. And in family, we take turns doing the dishes. Tonight is my turn, tomorrow is your turn. And I was like, wow, okay, thanks. I also remember that when I was pastoring in LA, our church was a few blocks from Skid Row. And um, our offices were on this like very gentrified street, Spring Street, uh, kind of chic, hip street, clubs and galleries and such. But we would routinely have homeless folks in our offices because about a third of the church at any given time were experiencing homelessness. And one guy in particular used to always hang out in the office. His name was Tony. Tony was a young man living with paranoid schizophrenia and camping out on the street every night. And when he first started hanging out in the offices, I'll, I'll, I'll acknowledge, I'll admit, I used to treat him like kind of like retail, like customer service, like, how can I help you, Tony, you know? And then after a while, I was like, you know what? You're not a guest here, Tony. You're family. So I started putting Tony to work. Tony would fold the bulletin, stuff envelopes, any office job we could do because Tony was not a guest in the church. Tony was family. And people used to come to the church all the time and say, what, how do you do ministry to the homeless? And I'd be like, ministry to the homeless? What are you talking about? You mean Tony? That's not the homeless. He's family. The homeless is not a community out there away from us. He is part of us. I think there's a strong temptation in the United States to have a perfectly curated church. Like the ones you see in like CCM music videos, right? Like, like they like stepped out of a Abercrombie and Fitch commercial. Like they have hairdressers and stylists and stuff. But that's, that's not the church. That's some kind of phony representation of the church. And I also think there's a temptation to have an ideologically curated church where we all think alike and believe the same things. And there, we have purity tests for whether you could be in the church or not. But that's not how family works. And that's not how I want Roots to work. I want Roots to be a place where we think for ourselves. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to agree with any of the pastors. You are welcome to be wrong. That was a joke. <laughs> but I really want Roots to be a place where we recognize our freedom to think for ourselves. And we have the freedom to wrestle, to question, to explore. Because the thing that bonds us as family is not ideological purity, it's not how you look, it's the way of Jesus and his love. Which brings me to my second point. Another thing we have to deconstruct about church is we have to move away from the comfort model to the formation model. This is, I think, the number one thing that we wrestle with in the United States. Because every day in the United States, we are bombarded with the message that we are fundamentally consumers, right? We are conditioned, often unconsciously, to get our identity from our choices of this or that product, our buying power. You are a consumer at base. And I am as guilty of this as anyone in this room. For example, I like Pepsi more than Coke. I like Mac OS more than Windows. I like Marvel more than DC. And if you prefer any of the other ones, may God have mercy on your souls. <laughs> but 
We have, bought, we have brought this consumeristic worldview to our approach to church. And we have evaluated church by its amenities, by how comfortable church can make us. But church is not about making us comfortable. Church is about discipling us, making us into a disciple community, a community that embodies Jesus' cross-shaped love. Let me give you an example. Um, well, more of an illustration, I guess. Uh, last year on Father's Day, Oshida gave me um, one of those movie pass subscriptions to the you know, AMC theaters. And I love the ones that have the really nice recliners. You know what I'm talking about? I love to sit back in that recliner with like buttered popcorn and the perfect mix of strawberry cream soda and vanilla root beer. That's like my, that's my happy place. But the church is not the movies. The church is more like a CrossFit gym. It's in the midst of these relationships that we form here in this place we call church that we are being trained, stretched, conditioned to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. The church is God's gymnasium. The church is where I've been challenged to confront my own self-centeredness. The church is where I've learned about white privilege, male privilege, able-bodied privilege, and much more. The church is where God has given me relationships with people that have expanded my thinking, challenged my assumptions. People that have been book smart scientists, people that have learned in the school of hard knocks. God has given us the church to learn how to love. If we can't do it here, we won't do it out there. The church is a place where we participate in practices that form us. The meals that we share in one another's homes, when we pray for one another, when we show up for one another when we're in need, when we come to the Lord's table side by side, when we lift up laments to God, when we sing together, these aren't empty rituals. These are practices that form us into new kind of humans, that form us into a new kind of community, a radically equitable, generous, and truth-telling kind of community. But this is not to say that all traditions are made equally and all practices are good in and of themselves. As I've said before in this series, over the centuries we have piled a lot on top of the Jesus way. The Jesus way most succinctly, most essentially, is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. We love God by giving our allegiance to Jesus alone and obeying him. We love our neighbors as ourselves with the same love that Jesus shows us. There definitely are some ways that church has developed that need to be deconstructed. For example, a third way that we need to deconstruct church is by moving away from a fortress mentality into an embassy mentality. What I mean by this is there are a lot of ways that church can become another means that we build walls. Another way that we hide. Another way that we separate from one another. Just another form of division in society. And that's a fortress mentality. As I talked about at the beginning of the series, there's a lot of fear-based practices in the church. A lot of fear-based doctrine in the church. 
Church is not where we hold ourselves off from those people. Church is where we are gathered together to have our hearts recalibrated. Where we are healed, renewed, and equipped. So that when we are sent out, we are sent out as bearers of love. Not fear, not division. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Ra, talks about how sometimes you can glimpse a church's theology by its architecture. If you look at some of the churches that were built in the mid-century evangelical churches, they're built with these rafters that sort of point upward uh, to a point in the middle. And if you turn those pictures upside down, it looks a little bit like an arc. So if you flip it upside down, it kind of looks like the hull of a ship. And what Dr. Ra was saying is that basically this could point to a way that the church subconsciously has a posture of antagonism towards the world. Sort of like we are in this ark and the world is going to hell. I love the picture instead, in contrast to that picture, the picture of the church as an embassy. While an embassy exists in one country, it acts as a little piece of homeland. If you're in the embassy, you're actually on your own home soil. It's kind of weird. Embassies are also teachers to their host countries. They carry the stories of their homeland to their host country. And ambassadors are trained to tell people about the beauty and the uniqueness of their homeland. They give them gifts, sing songs, prepare food from their homeland. Everyone who represents, who everyone who's an ambassador of that, that homeland is a representative, a spokesperson for that home country. This is the picture that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as Christ's ambassadors, we carry with us the love that we have been formed by in community with other Jesus disciples. We have learned how to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. We've learned how to exalt those whom the world devalues. And we've learned how to recognize our own areas of privilege and submit ourselves to others. Wherever you are in your deconstruction journey, my prayer is that Roots can be a place where you can refine the beauty and power of the Jesus way. A lot of people are leaving church these days and I totally understand that impulse. But I want Roots to be a safe place to question, to doubt, to be a free thinker, even to share your pain and your hurt. I think it's important for us to be real, to be truth tellers. So again, I want to reiterate that the pastoral team is making themselves available to anyone. Um, please, you know, email us. There's, I think there's a sign-up sheet in the, in the weekly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that there is a lot of baggage that we bring with us when we talk about church. We recognize there's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt.
but you have given the church not as an instrument of torture, but as a life-giving community. You have given us the church so that we can be formed in love. Lord, I pray that Roots would be a place, a space, a community where we are formed by love. And I pray that we would be family for one another. I pray that we would not look to our own comfort, but look to the ways in which you are at work in the midst of these relationships. And I pray that we would not see ourselves as a walled-off city from the rest of the world, but we would see ourselves as ambassadors, sharing what you have done in our lives, sharing the way in which your love pours into our lives and out of our lives. As we gather each week and we are sent each week, may your Holy Spirit be sent with us. May we be filled with your Holy Spirit. May we remember the ways in which you have, you have set the lonely in families. You have provided for us. People have come alongside of us in our times of need. You have sent angels, people in the church who have been messengers of God. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.